a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. I am so glad you could join our little gathering of wrong thinkers. And by the way, when I talk about wrong think, I'm not talking about we're just going to be contrary because everybody, you know, is going we're going to disagree with what everybody out there is saying. It's it's a it's a very calculated effort to resist those who would tell you you must think this. You can only believe that and don't even think about saying this or that. I don't know. There's just there's a lot of bullying going on right now. And uh, speaking strictly for myself, I'm not having it. And if you feel like, uh, you know, truth is more important than ideological purity, welcome to our gathering. This is what we do every day. For two hours, we hold forth on different things that will help us understand the world around us a little bit better. And more importantly, will show us that we have the power to make a very positive difference. But you've got to be willing to be a bit of a contrarian in order to do so. Doesn't mean you have to be an abrasive one, just... You have to be willing to stand up for yourself. By the way, the show is brought to you by great sponsors like the Staples Hunter team at Patriot Home Mortgage, as well as Fire Steel Firestarters. You'll be hearing more about both of them in the course of the show. Let's talk about the cashless society. Now, when I say those words, cashless society, do you immediately kind of get that uh, conspiracy theory vibe? Because that's what the media is talking about right now. Oh, yeah, you people talking about going cashless. That's all just tinfoil hat nonsense. And yet this is the very same media that just within the last few weeks has been banning or rather bashing the use of cash and applauding those uh, locales that have banned the use of cash. Gavin Wax has a piece written in uh, intellectualtakeout.org. Well worth your time. And you can check this out in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Every day I post the show notes. You can follow the links. There's some great information there. This one talks about how before there was a coin shortage, cash was under attack in the media. And in fact, it was being portrayed as a COVID-19 hazard. Now, news outlets are making sure that everybody knows to th- only to think of a looming cashless society as some kind of conspiracy theory. In fact, uh, Gavin Wax points out, at the height of anxiety over coronavirus, CNN berated the American people for using cash. One of the headlines said, do not take a bunch of cash out of the bank. And dirty money, the case against using cash during the coronavirus. (sighs) Okay, I've seen these too, and I've heard people say, well, you know, you can spread the virus that way. CBS News, by the way, similarly ran an anti-cash story at the time, as did other mainstream networks. But more recent stories feign concern about the growing suspicion of an impending digital coup against paper and coined money. Now, Gavin Wax says it's always funny how the media manipulates emotions, giving us something to be outraged about one day and then trying to calm us down the next day as if, hey, you're outraged against the wrong thing. Americans should be concerned, he says, about moves away from cash, and there's nothing wrong with questioning who would benefit and who would lose in a cashless society. So if that makes you a conspiracy theory in the eyes of the average journalist, who cares? Wasn't it just last year that the Bank of America's CEO, Brian Monahan, said, we want a cashless society? Gavin Wax says big banks and financial institutions would reap obvious benefits 
beyond saving on the cost of transacting in coins and paper as well as transporting them. They'd have that much more data to collect in bulk on their customers. And in the era of cancel culture, other more nightmarish consequences are are stunningly easy to fathom. You see where this is going, don't you? The difference between being banned from social platforms and financial platforms is a matter of degree. And the latter's already happening. He says there is no downside to a cashless society for its fiercest proponents. They're not worried about finding an under-the-table side hustle or working for tips. They aren't kids trying to mow a lawn or who are otherwise priced out or regulated out of the market by minimum wage and child labor laws. No, the big players thrive in heavily top-down regulatory regimes. And he says the smaller ones who might improve their standing need the freedom that cash and the accompanying privacy provides. Unfortunately, though, he says some leftist progressives are spearheading efforts to help people in lower economic strata be swathed up in the post-cash digital system. Now, that would entail subsidizing free checking accounts or other special access to the financial system. At last, inclusiveness and equality will be guaranteed once that fascist cash is out of the way. At least the campaign slogan could go something like that. Now, he says many anti-cash advocates also tend to favor negative interest rates and much freer reign for central banks. By the way, negative interest rates, if I'm not mistaken, isn't that where you pay the bank for the privilege of keeping your money in the bank? I'm just, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's what that actually could, could lead to. He says such policies are easier to enact without physical forms of legal tender. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell expressed his aversion to negative interest rates for now back in May. But President Donald Trump and other monetary theorists support the idea. Negative interest rates mean an end to savings so that consumerism becomes all-encompassing for economic activity. The permanent stimulus would become a compulsory force rather than relief amid a downturn. So the threat of a cashless society is real. How urgent the threat is in today's fast-paced and unpredictable environment, well, people have to decide for themselves. Gavin Wax says the ongoing coin shortage is seen by some as evidence of a quickening, which may or may not be the case, because that wasn't a media-generated narrative. It's been widely denounced as a conspiracy theory. He says the coin shortage does have a reasonable explanation, though, given the lockdown and social distancing orders. Smaller businesses are losing out to the likes of Amazon and other online services, so coins are being used much less. K. Craig Wildfang, in an interview with Axios, said, I think most merchants, especially small merchants and small transaction merchants, would still prefer to take cash. Now, he's with the law firm Robbins Kaplan, which is suing on behalf of retailers against card swipe fees. Considering that over 90% of all companies fail within two years of a disaster, according to the U.S. Small Business Administration, it's all but guaranteed that there will be fewer businesses around to fight for cash as an option as long as COVID-19 lockdowns and related emergency orders carry on. Even larger chains like CVS and Kroger and Walmart and others are refusing to give change, instead choosing to donate the extra cents to charity or otherwise digitize the value for the customer for their next shopping trip. As Clifford Theas at the American Institute for Economic Research explains, there's a good reason behind the coin shortage. It's fairly well known that pennies cost more than they're worth to produce, but he also adds to their total cost the time lost in counting them in transactions as well as transporting them. 
Thieves estimates the use of pennies to cost up to $500 million a year, which may be more costly than simply rounding off prices to the nearest nickel or dollar. Thanks to monetary inflation, those same dynamics have an effect on nickels, dimes, and quarters, which are all produced with much cheaper metals than their original form required. And therein lies the answer. Witness the record high prices of gold and silver. The U.S. dollar is being digitally printed into oblivion, along with trillions upon trillions of dollars being summoned by Congress to fund multiple COVID relief bills. So cash may be the last bastion of value, as it retains some scarcity in relation to digitized dollars. It's important for people's livelihood and freedom that it be defended vigilantly. Don't let the media shame you into complacence regarding a cashless society. It's only crazy not to question such a system that clearly some have no qualms about forcing on us all. Again, this is from Gavin Wax, originally published on fee.org. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. I encourage you to check it out. Look, I, I know that uh, the cash is fascist mantra is probably something we're going to be hearing more about. But there's something to be said about the specter of electronic fascism. And I understand the word fascism gets used a lot. But you think about the people who have been deplatformed from social media or various uh, you know, platforms like YouTube or Twitter and whatnot. What happens when that kind of control is placed over the money supply? In other words, you can be turned off. You can become an unperson, as they would say in Newthink or in Newspeak, simply because you don't hold the right opinions. I mean, come on. Do you, do you think for a moment cancel culture would, would hesitate to do such a thing? They're already working to get people fired or to get them tossed out of their jobs and, you know, again, deplatformed, demonetized if they have a social media platform and a following. That happens all the time with regularity. It wouldn't be that big of a, of a leap or that big of a, a you know, a, an affront to their morality, such as it is, to simply advocate, no, you just turn off that person's uh, debit card. If all that we're legally allowed to transact in is electronic funds... Well, good luck. Good luck buying your groceries. Good luck gassing up your car. Good luck paying your rent. You wanted to push people to the margins of society and really put the squeeze on people to tow a particular ideological line? Absolutely. Just control their basic ability to purchase anything. Wait, where have I heard that before? Seems like in the Bible, once upon a time, there was talk about uh, no one would be able to purchase without uh, permission, something, something. Anyway, you get the point. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back Thanks for joining us here on the Brian Hyde Show today. I want to mention one of my great sponsors. That is firesteel.com. I know as part of your preps, you have the ability to create fire, right? You've probably got boxes of matches or maybe you've got lighters set aside. And this is all good. The ability to create a fire is, of course, one of the most essential things that you can do, particularly if you find yourself in a survival situation. It can be used for cooking, for heat, for signaling. Anyway, you get the point. But you can only store so many lighters, and they run out of fuel. You can only store so many matches, and they take up a lot of space. Depending on how you store them, well, they they could also be ruined. Check out firesteel.com for their 
unique fire starters. They're fire spark makers that are incredible, and one of them will fit in your pocket and can make thousands upon thousands of sparks. Put it with a little dryer lint, and my friend, you have a very reliable fire starting system for a fraction of what those uh, hundreds and hundreds of boxes of matches or lighters would cost you. Firesteel.com. Put the code Brian in at checkout, B-R-Y-A-N, and they'll give you a nice 10% discount on your purchase. All right, it's the little things that count, right? It's the little things in the morning that, that make you happy and, you know, all the stuff we complain about. Uh, life is really pretty good in the first world. John Stossel, for instance, says, was the power on in your house this morning? And if so, he says, thank fossil fuels. This is a timely subject. You know, of course, with COVID, the new, the Green New Deal has been kind of put on hold, or at least it's been temporarily put on hold until we're all in subjugation, and then I guess it'll be implemented right over the top of us in our concerns. But I love uh, John Stossel's recent defense of fossil fuels. And he starts with something that most of us can understand, and that is, hey, if the power was on in your house this morning, that's something you should be pretty grateful for. He says, a few parts of America do get energy from other sources. For instance, Washington State has fast-flowing rivers that allow Washingtonians to get most of their electricity from hydroelectric power. Iowa now gets about 40% of its electricity from the wind. But most of us get power from the much-hated fossil fuels, primarily natural gas and coal. Now, burning these does pollute, although government-mandated, yes, he says government has done some useful things, controls like scrubbers and smokestacks have almost eliminated the dangerous pollutants like sulfur dioxide. But fossil fuels do still emit, emit greenhouse gases, and that probably increases global warming. He goes, yes, I know, some scientists doubt that man's activities contribute much, but he says, I'll go with the large group that says we do. He says, now, Black Lives Matter protesters say fossil fuels create environmental racism because black neighborhoods are often located in low-lying floodplains or are close to refineries and other energy infrastructure. Activist Jane Fonda recently joined them to say the fossil fuel industry will have to pay. But Stossel says, I suspect Fonda rather and other anti-fossil fuel protesters have no clue about where the electricity that powers their electric cars comes from. Today, Americans get 81% of our energy and 62.7% of our electricity from fossil fuels. And, and just to drive the point home, he says oil fuels about 91% of all transportation. So without fossil fuels, much of the world would freeze in the dark. We just don't have enough alternatives. Now, one country almost does, and that's Iceland. Iceland has hot springs, so geothermal power provides 25% of its juice. Hydropower provides most of the rest. But even in Iceland, that's still not enough. Iceland burns oil. In fact, John Stossel says the protesters ought to watch the new documentary, Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. He has a video this week with a short four-minute version of it. And energy journalist Robert Bryce says electricity doesn't guarantee wealth, but not having it almost always means poverty. The defining inequality in the world today is the disparity between the electricity rich and the electricity poor. Three billion people in the world today use less electricity than what's used by my kitchen refrigerator. To empower the low-watt world, we're going to need a lot more juice. So John Stossel says you can hate coal all you want, but it still accounts for about 38% of global electricity production. Even Japan, home to the Kyoto Pri Protocol, 
plans to build 22 new coal-fired power plants. Pitiful and expensive American green mandates won't dent the world's greenhouse gas emissions. Now, Americans take electric light for granted, but Bryce's film reminds us electricity is what allowed us to conquer our oldest foe, darkness. For millennia, the cost of having well-lit spaces at night was so high only the very rich could afford it. And that's still true in much of the world, believe it or not. About 300 million people in India have no access to electricity. Many cook and heat their homes by burning cow dung. It's why about 1.3 million Indians die from indoor air pollution each year. Cooking with cow dung, Bryce says, is akin to burning 400 cigarettes an hour in your kitchen. So pollution like that's a much bigger threat to disadvantaged people than greenhouse gases American activists complain about. Darkness kills human potential, says Bryce. Electricity nourishes it. Now, John Stossel says, okay, but what about climate change? I'm told that's why we must move to renewable energy. Renewables, Bryce replies, simply cannot supply the enormous amount of electricity the world needs at prices consumers can afford. Sorry, but that's I guess that's one of those stubborn pieces of reality. Environmental activist Michael Schellenberger points out that he often hears environmentalists say people must reduce energy consumption. But the only people in the world who say that are rich people. Bryce concludes energy poverty versus climate change. There is no easy one size fits all solution, but there are about three billion people in the world without adequate access to electricity and they will do whatever they have to do to get the electricity that they need. Interesting take, huh? All right, I'm going to shift gears here for a moment, and we are going to talk a little bit about Western history. And this is, I'm only going to touch on this briefly because it's a very, very detailed essay that uh, that I have posted in the show notes, which you can access at thebrianhydeshow.com. Just look for the show notes for August 6th, and you can read this for yourself. It's called The Humiliation of Western History. The author is Frank Ferretti, and he points out something that you may have noticed is going on, but maybe you were trying to put it into context. I know I've I've been looking at this. One of the biggest things in the culture war that, that we have going on is who controls the narrative through which a society understands itself. And Frank Ferretti says, at present, those controlling the narrative appear to be committed to reorganizing society's historical memory and disputing and delegitimizing its ideals. That would include things like liberty and equality. Now, take Netflix, for example. You have programs like Dear White People and Explained, the racial wealth gap that recast the Western way of life and Western history as irredeemably malevolent. The humiliation and demonization of the past and its ideals is now enacted at every important cultural event. Think about this. Any prize-giving ceremony, be it the Oscars, the Tonys, the Pulitzers, invariably includes speeches boasting of the bravery of the recipient for daring to speak truth to power. And he says, ironically, this supposedly rebellious rhetoric is espoused by those who actually wield cultural power. These cultural elites see it as their uh, reason to denounce the culture into which they were born. And moreover, they do so for the public's benefit in order to raise awareness. See, back in the 1960s, raising awareness was a form of consciousness raising. It was something one did to change one's own outlook on the world. In recent years, though, especially on social media, it's become a means to raise the awareness of others. As such, many use awareness raising as a way to distinguish themselves from those who, in the smug language of the day, don't get it. 
And one of the most powerful proponents of the dogma of awareness raising is the newspaper of record, the New York Times. Back in August of 2019, it decided to speak truth to power by launching the 1619 Project, an ongoing initiative featuring essays and other contributions, maintaining that the year 1619, rather than 1776, is the true origin of the U.S. And this, the, the project argues, is because the U.S. was founded for the purpose of entrenching slavery, and 1619 was the year African slaves first arrived in Jamestown. All subsequent U.S. history, therefore, is shaped by that founding enslaving moment. Okay, it's historical revisionism. It just points out the importance of studying these things for yourself. More importantly, read books that were written long ago. If you really want to know what people were thinking, you've got to get into their heads by reading what they actually wrote. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show, my fellow wrong thinker. And don't forget to access the show notes again at thebrianhydeshow.com. I uh, started off with the essay from Frank Ferretti. Uh, talking about uh, Western history, how it's being erased in the name of social justice. It's a very lengthy essay. I wouldn't have time to share it if I did both hours of the show. It's, it's, it's a pretty, uh, pretty good read. Well worth it, though. And, and if you want to know why is Western history being humiliated, why is it being deconstructed, he tells you all about the movements, the activists who are trying to discredit our historical memory, especially the ideals on which uh, Western history and Western civilization has uh, has been founded. And by the way, just so we're clear, I'm not suggesting for a moment that they got everything right. Everything was absolutely perfect and none of it should be questioned. We're dealing with human beings. They had their blind spots. They made mistakes. But they also solved a lot of the problems that had plagued the world. This is one of the things. I'm going to be politically incorrect for a moment. Slavery did not originate with the founding of the New World and the uh, colonization of America and of ultimately the founding of the United States. It's existed as long as mankind has existed, and it's, it's interesting to me that uh, Western civilization really seems to be the, the one civilization that, that uh, put an end to slavery in a very meaningful way. In other words, made it uh, unnecessary through things like industrialization, as well as just the simple moral concerns that go along with liberty and equality before the law. So take it in context. Don't uh, don't just take one side or the other, but more importantly, read those old books. Don't take somebody else's word for it. You're not a child. These are things you can figure out for yourself, but you got to be willing to step outside of your own time and what this historian thinks that person in history was saying. Go read what that person actually had to say. Most of the people in question were very prolific writers. It's not like they leave you guessing. Discard the bad. Keep the good. You'll be much wiser for it. Okay, shifting gears once again here. A lot of attention focused on fighting COVID-19, right? I mean, that is like that is all that dominates the news cycle for most days. But what are all the other nasty diseases out there in the world doing? Got a great article here from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is from uh, Fiona Harrigan. Which diseases are on the rise as we fight COVID-19? Now, this provides some much-needed perspective into the fact that, first of all, 
there are other diseases in the world other than COVID-19. And uh, secondly, maybe there are some trade-offs that are taking place here that uh, we hadn't considered while we're all experiencing tunnel vision of a medical sort just on this one particular virus. Fiona Harrigan says the battle against COVID-19 has been a grand and tragic balancing act. Reopening countries prematurely, the wisdom goes, will lead to an increase in cases and deaths. On the other side of the scale, rising unemployment rates and business closures threaten unfathomable, unfathomable poverty. Most nations have made a choice. They have elected to lay dormant and halt their economies in the name of saving lives. Now, she says that trade-off intended to prevent widespread human loss may be difficult to argue against at face value, but reality is hardly that simple. Fiona Harrigan says our vigor to defeat COVID-19 has caused us to become complacent toward countless diseases, some of which were on the path to eradication. And while the world may have taken a break from those pursuits, by no means have these diseases vanished. Intuitively, limited medical supplies and staff must be delegated according to the most pressing needs. And she says COVID-19 has indeed proven devastating to certain populations. And in many parts of the world, those allocations may be warranted. But going all in on these, effort means, all the, on these efforts, she says, means ignoring others. Combine this fixation with the fact that the supply chains have been thoroughly upended and medical shortages abound and epidemiological disaster is all but inevitable. Now, she says, as the world continues to collectively combat one disease, it's worth discussing the others we've cast a blind eye on. Because while they may not be as newsworthy as COVID-19, the damage they inflict could prove just as devastating. Here are some names you haven't heard for a while. Polio, nearly eliminated, creeps back. For a time, polio was one of the most terrifying diseases in the United States. Roughly 35,000 people were paralyzed yearly, through the 1940s, a particularly unfortunate metric given that the disease primarily affects children under the age of five. Parents kept their kids indoors during the late summer polio season. Survivors were kept alive on iron lungs. It looked as if everything would change after Jonas Salk discovered an effective vaccine in 1953. Widespread vaccination soon began in the United States, and the nation officially eliminated polio in 1979. Since 1988, global vaccine campaigns have led to a decrease of over 99% in polio cases, with more than 16 million people saved from paralysis by the World Health Organization's estimate. Polio is now endemic in only two countries, Pakistan and Afghanistan. They, too, were inching closer and closer to complete eradication. But, she points out, as the world sets its sights on COVID-19, Polio has come to thrive on neglect. In Afghanistan, polio arose in three provinces that had not reported cases of the virus in as long as five years. The nation was only able to complete two polio vaccination campaigns before COVID-19 took control, though it typically conducts up to 10 per year. Since January, Pakistan has reported at least 59 cases of the virus. The country's medical authorities are now scrambling to resume vaccination campaigns. Because polio can't survive long outside the human body, it's one of the few diseases that we can entirely eliminate. And she says that's why this resurgence is so dangerous and heartbreaking. For as long as cases continue to spring up around the world, no matter how few, polio is a threat. And the point here is very clear. The trade-off is clear. As nations pick their battles, some efforts will fall to the wayside and fall they have with at least 13.5 million kids around the world now vulnerable to polio 
due to suspended vaccination campaigns. 24-hour polio hotlines in Nigeria and Pakistan mostly field COVID-19 calls. Millions of stored vaccines may lose their efficacy if they remain shelved much longer. Now, I'm going to have to abbreviate here. The full essay will be on the website, thebrianhideshow.com, show notes for August 6th. Fiona Harrigan points out HIV is still a global pandemic, or global epidemic, rather. Since it began, an estimated 75.7 million people worldwide have contracted the incurable disease. She also talks about tuberculosis, which, by the way, is the world's deadliest infectious disease. Back in the 1880s, tuberculosis killed one in seven people living in the United States and Europe. In sum, it's thought to have taken over a billion lives between 1800 and 2017. Active tuberculosis is a truly imposing disease if it's left untreated. 80% of patients who fall ill and receive no medical attention eventually die. Now, in the West, public health authorities implemented a search, treat, and prevent strategy to stop the disease in its track. A combination of contact tracing, treatment, and preventative therapy helped these countries halt the White Plague. Now similar programs take on the disease in regions where it remains prevalent, namely places like Southeast Asia, Africa, and the Western Pacific. Thanks to these efforts, the tuberculosis mortality rate dropped by 42% between 2000 and 2017. That means millions of lives saved. But Fiona Harrigan points out most tuberculosis cases can be cured with a six-month course of four antibiotics, a regimen that has become a linchpin of global campaigns. Unfortunately, Many TB patients end treatment prematurely, often due to drug shortages or lack of guidance from medical professionals. And some may actually develop a resistance to medication. Some strains of the disease are untreatable altogether. These patients and the patients who go undiagnosed are, given, are dangerous given how transmittable or transmissible tuberculosis is. One person with the active disease can infect 10 to 15 others over the course of the year. And you can believe that COVID-19 programs have pushed some of these tuberculosis programs to the side. So the dilemma that we face here is that countries are trading COVID-19 for paralysis by polio, lifelong HIV diagnoses, and preventable TB deaths. Fiona Harrigan says the least fortunate populations will tragically be disproportionately affected. Half of the top 10 causes of death in low-income nations are infectious diseases including several of the conditions that she mentions in this article. They require extensive prevention and treatment, which are harder to attain now than ever before. She says devoting any and all medical resources to one cause necessarily removes them from another. There are so many nurses, clinics, and syringes in the world. There are only so many, rather. But the division of those resources in its current state may very well be misguided. At all costs, rhetoric may prove effective against COVID-19, but in no way does it take into account the very real and very deadly diseases that continue to spread across the globe. She says proponents of COVID-19 prevention measures are perfectly willing to discuss the lives that are saved at the expense of economic progress. But when will there be widespread recognition that these very same measures could cause billions of people around the world to contract and die from other preventable diseases? Are those lives somehow exempt from our trade-off tally? Well said, Fiona Harrigan. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I just want to take a moment and thank you for being part of our growing audience. It is, it's immensely gratifying to see the, the podcast numbers rising little by little every day. I'm grateful that you're a part of the audience. Can I ask a small favor? If you find value in this program, if you find that there is great food for thought, if you can can browse the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com and, and find things that are worth sharing on your social media feeds or worth sharing with the people in your life, just let some folks know, hey, they too can subscribe. It's very, very easy. And I would ask you, you know, go to the go to dot com. You can subscribe to the podcast there. I am grateful for each and every listener because I know there are so many voices out there that are competing for your time and for your attention. The fact that you would spend some time with me, even if it's just a limited amount of time each day, it really means the world to me. Let's talk a little bit about uh, lockdowns. Because I know, like you, I'm hearing talk about, well, it's time to lock it down even harder. We talked about uh, Melbourne, Australia earlier this week. Holy cow. They have a curfew. I think it's from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. You are not allowed to venture. One person can leave your home per day, and they can only venture no more than five kilometers from home. It's only to get essential items. I mean, how do you lock down harder than this? I mean, I, I guess you could just simply... You know, tell people, you know, put padlocks on their doors and we'll come around to let you out when it's exercise time. And, you know, maybe you can go lift weights out there in the prison. Yard. I'm sorry, out there in your yard. It just seems like we're on the verge of turning into the, the world's largest open air prisons in the name of trying to fight a disease, which 99.8% of people are going to survive, even if they contract it. I know I'm trying to get my mind around it. I'm still working on it because so far. I'm I'm just not buying this imperative. We've got to lock it down. And the crazy thing is, it wasn't so long ago the media was talking about how, well, Europe has beat back COVID. What, with their stringent lockdowns? Yes, they beat it back. But now the lockdowns are looming again. Ryan McMacken from the Mises Institute has a, a very thoughtful article on this, and I think he sounds a very timely warning at the same time. He says, in recent days, governments in Australia, Europe, and the U.S., have moved toward imposing a new wave of forced lockdowns in the name of fighting the spread of COVID-19. Now, this includes Australia, which imposed harsh new lockdown measures, including a curfew in Melbourne for the next six weeks, a ban on wedding gatherings in schools that have to go back to online classes, one person per household allowed to leave their homes once a day outside of curfewed hours to pick up essential goods, and they have to stay within a five-kilometer radius of their home. Meanwhile, says Ryan McMacken, Belgium in Europe is threatening a total lockdown even as it tightens other measures, which now means that a family or those living together can meet only the same five people from outside their household over the next four weeks. Belgium's been in a state of lockdown in all but name for about months, for about four months now, even since even until the most recent restrictions, an individual was allowed to meet in person with only 15 different people per week. Dang, are you keeping count of how many people you've been meeting with? McMacken says other regions of Europe are discussing similar measures. The Guardian reports Europe is bracing for a second wave of coronavirus as continuing outbreaks raise the prospect of reimposed restrictions. The Spanish region of Catalonia may also have to reintroduce lockdown measures if outbreaks are not brought under control within 10 days. In France, the health minister has called for greater vigilance after a sharp rise in COVID-19 cases in young people. 
and Germany's public health advisory body has said it is deeply concerned about the rise in cases over the past few weeks. Okay, now, just as a quick aside, cases are going up. Isn't testing going up as well? So I, I guess what I'm looking for is give me some context. So, yes, yeah, certainly there are more cases. Isn't that to be expected as the virus makes its way through the population? What I really want to know about is how many people are being hospitalized as a result, how many people are dying as a result. Because the fact that officials are hyper-focused on cases rather than these two other factors makes me think that maybe they're, they're cooking the numbers or at least hyping those case numbers in an effort to maintain fear and therefore compliance among the populace. I know it's, it's a crazy way to think of things, but that's how my mind works. Why are they reporting it the way that they are? Why are we supposed to feel the way we're supposed to feel about this? I mean, I don't mean to be blunt, but I don't see the bodies stacking up like cordwood. And even if I did, I'd still be reluctant to, well, I guess you should take the rest of my freedoms just so I can feel safe. Something's afoot. Ryan McMacken says Serbia and surrounding countries are announcing new restrictions and regional shutdowns as cases reach new all-time highs. Now, with these new restrictions will come more economic devastation, more unemployment, more suicide, more drug overdoses, more cancer death. The cycle's likely to repeat itself because lockdowns don't make diseases go away. You can't hide from it. As McMacken says, the only, assuming the theory behind the lockdown is actually true, spread out infections into the future. Consequently, he says it increasingly looks like the global public should expect regimes to keep locking down their citizens again and again. The only way this cycle will end is A, if populations revolt against the lockdowns, or B, herd immunity is reached either through widespread transmission or through a vaccine. Now, the preferred course of action on the part of the experts and politicians is clear, lockdown forever or until there's a vaccine. Yet just a few weeks ago, we were hearing about the, the successful lockdown stories. What a success they were in Europe and Australia. A commonly used phrase in the media has been that European regimes have, quote, beat back the virus. The actual outcomes were apparently immaterial so long as lockdowns were imposed. And Ryan McMacken says it seemed that by definition, a country that employed a lockdown strategy was successful. Now, this is perhaps the only possible explanation for why some experts have ridiculously asserted that Italy, among the worst countries in the world in terms of deaths attributed to COVID, beat the disease with lockdowns. The implication of all these declarations of victory was that if sufficiently harsh lockdowns were adopted, well, then COVID-19 would be under control. Some even insisted that the lockdowns could make the disease disappear. Australian health bureaucrats, for example, suggested that lockdowns could cause the disease to be eliminated entirely. This Australian report claimed it is expected that the virus would die out within Australia if extreme social distancing mandates are maintained for months. Another expert proclaimed in June, having brought the case numbers right down in Australia, we may not need lockdowns again. But Ryan McMacken says if we employ the logic of the advocates of lockdowns themselves, there's never been any reason to presume that lockdowns can beat back a disease or eliminate it. The claim that forced lockdowns lead to fewer deaths has always been debatable. Some countries with harsh lockdowns like Spain and the UK actually have worse per capita death totals than countries and jurisdictions with no mandatory lockdowns like Sweden in Europe and Utah and Iowa in the U.S., for the sake of argument, he says, let's accept that lockdowns do help to slow 
In other words, not prevent the transmission of disease. We'll ignore for now the, the deaths caused by the lockdowns themselves. The logic is this. A slowing of transmission prevents hospital resources from being overwhelmed. So it's assumed a certain minimum level of quality can be maintained at medical institutions with the help of lockdowns. So the best that can be hoped for is that some lives will be saved by ensuring hospital beds will continue to be available. But over time, the number of infections is the same because lockdowns do nothing to actually eliminate the disease. And from here, he talks about how the the narrative shifted from we've got to flatten the curve to lockdowns until vaccine. What exactly did that happen? shift take place during the early days of the COVID-19 panic panic rather politicians and technocrats justified the lockdowns on the rationale 15 days to slow the spread but then their rationale changed we saw this shift begin to take shape in early April when for example U.S. health bureaucrat Anthony Fauci claimed it would be impossible to even relax mandatory social distancing till there were essentially no new cases no deaths for a period of time and former presidential adviser Ezekiel Emanuel said the truth is we have but no choice we have no choice but to remain locked down for the next 18 months or more. Okay, but here's a question that McMacken asks that should be on your mind and my mind as well. What if there's no vaccine coming? What if there is no vaccine right around the corner? Earlier this week, World Health Organization director Tedros Adham- Adhanom Ghebreyesus said during a press conference from the agency's Geneva headquarters There is no silver bullet at the moment, and there never might be. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson admitted the vaccine is by no means guaranteed. Given the history of failed attempts at creating vaccines for coronaviruses, there's no reason to assume this coronavirus will have a vaccine in 2020, 2021, or even beyond. One thing we can assume, though, is that politicians and health bureaucrats will continue to keep the world in lockdown indefinitely at least they're going to seek this they want immunity passports they want a police apparatus capable of enforcing mask mandates forced house arrest and any other form of lockdown they deem necessary they want to maintain the friction that the only two options available are world-ending plague and endless lockdown that sounds like a pretty uh, pretty dire scenario and it sounds like you and i have a choice and I'm not talking about, do we rise up and fight in the streets? I'm talking about, do you consent or not? Because that's really where it all begins. This is The Brian Hyde Show.